The following audio is via a Skype call. Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Demartini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. You know, we have heard a lot, if you followed anything in the media, about brain health and uh, injuries. Uh, Not only that, it is being covered so much. It shows up in some of the movies we watch, some of the television shows we watch, but yet we know so little about it. Today, what do we need to know about recognizing signs of traumatic brain injury T-B-I, with our nation's veterans. Not only is this important, but it's also important to get educated, get informed, and get involved. Today, Dr. Stuart Hoffman, Scientific Program Manager, Office of Research and Development Department of Veterans Affairs, is joining us here today, not just to talk about what the state of affairs are, but what it is all of us can do better at. Dr. Hoffman, it's great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me on this important topic. It is an important topic. And I think what's happening with it now is that we're getting more coverage about this now than ever. uh, And might I say, because of sports and sports events. uh, I never thought in a million years that it would be a sports event that may rise to a new level of awareness for all of those that have served in the military. But now here we are. Um, Let's talk about what traumatic brain injury is. And from your perspective, why do so many of the signs get overlooked? Traumatic brain injury can be very complex. It it can go from the very mild, almost subconcussive, to the most severe where your your life in survival is, is, uh, is in question. So, um, and, and with sports, it could go the whole range. And, and one of the problems is that the symptoms can be varied. No, no two TBIs can be the same mm-hmm. a lot of times. And so you could be uh, cognitive, sensory, it could be chronic pain issues. It could be behavioral, like impulsivity and depression. Uh, it, it, there, it runs the gamut. Uh, and, you know, part of what I know is, you know, your studies, especially from what I've looked at in your doctoral studies, you know, we're looking at, you know, behavioral and molecular neuroscience, right? Uh, from the state that, uh, that I, I lived in, New Jersey, from Rutgers. Um, but even in the discovery of that, and when we think and when we say the word neurology, it's so vast, it's so wide. Because the brain, in essence, has more connections than we can even imagine. What would you say is, for you, in the time you've been doing this, your greatest discoveries, the greatest message we could say to people about this? 
Oh, wow. You <laughs> that's a lot to unpack right there. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say right now uh, we're, you know, I've been, I've been in the brain injury field from research to now administration uh, for about uh, 35 years almost. And, and what impresses me more is the interplay between the brain and the rest of the body, especially the immune system. And that um, and how the immune system can not only uh, cause inflammation in the brain, but how it affects our behavior. Uh, it, it may have links to, to depression and other uh, behavioral issues, uh, but it also can maybe promote degenerative effects. So uh, one, of the, one of the examples I, I casually give out is that if you injure your knee repeatedly, you're going to have chronic inflammatory condition in your knee. If you bang your head enough or get exposed to enough blast, you probably will have a similar situation. Um, and, and that is what I believe we're, where we're going to right now is that it, it's, it's basically one body. Yeah, I mean, don't you think that one of the most interesting things I think that that I'm discovering is the fact that we when we say brain trauma, we start to talk about a visual thing that happens. But we're talking about, um, you know, the men and women that are serving. And you talked about something really important. Every day, they are exposed to blast or blast exposure, right? You know, they every day they they could be exposed to this, and and we don't say enough about the wide range of brain trauma. So we think in our minds, oh, brain trauma, something happened, somebody got hit in the head, and there you go. It's not it's not that simple. Exactly, it, it it's not that simple. It you know, getting a brain injury may or may not produce any symptoms at the time, and so if you're talking about you know, the, the, the jumping out of uh, planes as paratrooper or uh, being or going or doing training with with high energy weapons like uh, artillery or the uh, the shoulder mounted weapons uh, that those that repetitive exposure, each one may not produce a symptom, but it's additive over time. And that's what we're finding to be a important variable right there. You know, um, as you're taking this message out, there's a lot of different layers to this. Uh, and, you know, we did touch upon the idea of sport-related and blast-related uh, TVI. Uh, but I got a question for you about our veterans. We need to find a way to have a conversation where they can come forward and get help on this. I think this is the number one issue. Because I'm not sure that they recognize, you know, whether or not they have been impaired. But this has got to be a family uh, engagement. But how are you, what are you discovering about the folks that are coming forward? Those are great points. Uh, Brain injury is, is, as I said before, it's very complex. So it may not be... Chances of you being permanently impaired from one concussion or two or three is unlikely. It's it's a lifetime exposure of repetitive exposure that, that often is it often leads to problems that some people may not associate with brain injury, and and sometimes a person who who's having symptoms doesn't realize it. And that's where the family comes in. 
So family is often the, the, the place where these symptoms are brought to someone's attention, and such as anger issues or impulsivity that, that weren't there before, and, or depression, and, and, and chronic pain, headache, very, very frequent. And, and so that, that is, um, those, those are issues that, that people need to understand uh, are maybe symptoms. And if they're a veteran, the, their local VA is a very uh, uh, important uh, piece of that, of that treatment for them. And that there are treatments out there that will help them uh, with their symptoms and Im- dramatically improve quality of life. Yeah, and I, I was reading the report uh, that you all put out. And by the way, let's take a moment and give out information on how people can find out more about the research that you all have done on this. Yes, and I would say some of the groundbreaking research that has helped so many veterans yep. is that back back in the, the mid-2000s, the VA actually developed a really good screen and comprehensive evaluation. So those veterans who came in uh, from the from the recent conflicts that were being exposed to IEDs, uh, they they were they when they they were their files were flagged and they were screened um, when, on their initial visit to the VA. And if they were uh, and this continues today, and and if they were positive on that screen, they were invited to come back for a comprehensive evaluation by a trained medical provider. And, and, and if they were still symptomatic and they showed evidence of having previous brain injury, there are therapies that the VA have that can, that can help uh, improve their, their symptoms. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, go ahead. We're, we're talking a significant percent. I just need to really drive that point home. Um, you know, many people ask, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about 1%? Are we talking about 2%? You know, the estimate, isn't the estimate over 20%, right? Uh, yeah, from the Iraq? DOD estimates, yeah, I think the DOD estimates that 22% of the casualties are, right. have involve a TBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, the VA numbers, because uh, not all veterans come to the VA, right. um, uh, it, it, the percentage is, is a little bit lower. Uh, it's about half that, and 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 but the the main question is that not main main issue is that not all people are symptomatic, and and so you may have had your brain injury, you may have been symptomatic while you were in the military, but now you're not. So it, it's it's not a a a a permanent situation for a lot of people. Then for others, they may not had had symptoms when they had their concussions, and now they're in a situation where they're they are demonstrating uh, symptoms, and those people really need to come to mm-hmm. their, their their veterans to come to the VA and 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 look at the treatment options that we have. Um, I know this is a short interview, but let's take a moment and give everybody uh, the website that they could go to. And then I think for my final question, I'd like you to give folks some symptoms, some signs, things that they should look for. Okay. So the the research uh, website, which has a lot of information on t- on traumatic brain injury and other conditions and ongoing clinical trials sponsored by the VA, is www.research.va.gov. That is www.research.va.gov. And the symptoms that that as a person that may have had a concussion or mm-hmm. or multiple concussions, you're looking for sensitivity of light headache, 
tends to be the noise. Uh, and, and maybe more longer down the road, uh, chronic pain issues such as headache uh, and, and impulsivity, anger issues. Uh, those m might be more diagnosed or, or, or realized by your family members. And, and go, if you're a veteran, go to the VA yeah. and, 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 and see what, what the VA has to offer uh, because there, there are ways to treat the symptoms and improve the quality of life. You know, I want to thank you for today. Personal message here, Dr. Hoffman, personal message. What would you like to leave us with? And thank you. I know that you are lined up to do so many of these interviews. It just talks to your passion and commitment to this. What's your personal message for everybody today? Do not despair. Mm -hmm. it, 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 that, that is the most important issue. Do not dis despair. There are medical providers out there that can help with most of the symptoms that, that afflict people with uh, the, the symptoms of, from brain injury. Yeah, now you're talking our language because, you know, we are the fastest growing positive talk radio network on the planet. Our a logo line is Positivity Rules. I'm making you an official Positivity Rules champion today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank and you. I also want to... Go ahead. Yeah, I want to thank our veterans for their service yep. and, and also... Um, for their enthusiastic participation in, in VA research. I mean, all the progress is, is due to our, our veterans' dedication to, to not just TBI, but all medical conditions. Yeah, I love what our veterans are doing. On um, last weekend up in Everett uh, at one of our senior centers, we had an entire entourage of Navy personnel, just amazing uh, folks that serve, come through the facility, absolutely geared up and interested in what's happening in our senior community. So we don't talk enough about those kinds of things. So thank you for mentioning it. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman. We're going to take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. Hey, I want to just tell everybody that you all have been hearing us in the recent months talk about what we are now hearing in the realm of, let's just call it senior living. But more than that, there is an accelerated purpose and passion behind our wise, wise generations now. And here's what we now know. From a media point of view, we know that on weekends, these folks are plugged in and they are tuned in and turned on. But what don't we know? What does it mean to take care of an aging parent or loved one? You know, until you do it, you don't know what you don't know. But today, Mary Sue Patchett is joining me here today, 30 years of senior care and housing experience. And what she is here to talk about with us today is tips on how we can eliminate the stress of planning for seniors in later years. And I mean that, eliminating the stress for all, multi-generational stress around this. But today, we're going to help you with that. Mary Sue, it's great to have you here. Dr. Pat, thank you for inviting me to um, speak with your listeners today. And this is such an important topic on how to start the conversation about senior living with your parents. And you raised such a good point that it does affect many generations in a family in terms of how we plan to care for our aging parents. Uh, and yeah, and you know, today we're talking about Brookdale Senior Living, but here's what I want to say, and this is something that folks don't know. You know, we always think it is that next generation, but one of the greatest pains, shall I say, is to watch a grandmother 
not be cared for. And we don't understand that, but that's an emerging trend now that's happening where not the children, but the children of the children are saying, mom, dad, are you paying attention here? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's, that's very true, Dr. Pat. And often when we talk about um, the older child talking to their parent, including their children in that conversation, does prepare them for the future conversation those those younger children will need to do for their older parents. So uh, I think you raise a really good point. You know, we, we did, I, may I share? Yes, some I, I was just going to ask you, yes. Yeah, how, how many of us are in the same, you know, situation, and mm-hmm. I am with my aging parents as well. So we did a recent survey with one poll of 2,000 Americans, and we, we have found that 58% of children with parents age 67 and older really are worrying about them living without assistance. So we're already worried about the parents, right? Yeah. Two out of five have not discussed future living plans with their parents at all. And nearly two-thirds of us adult children are saying, wow, this is really uncomfortable and, and really stressful. So I hope we can provide some tips today to your listeners to, to make that less stressful and much more productive both for us and for our parents. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a wide range of things to be mindful about. Uh, first of all, we're talking uh, not just medical, but we're also talking quality of life. And that gets left out of situations. I mean, we now know in this industry that we are facing these folks, generations that have been here with us that are not really being able to live in a, in a lifestyle where they are with others, where they're not feeling left out where they're not feeling like they can participate. And I'm very fortunate. I, I, I got to tell you, you know, in the state of Washington, there are more senior centers that are out there to bring people together. But I'm telling you, that mm-hmm. is not the case everywhere. So tell us about what you have discovered are the benefits. And what is your take on what I call you know, the, the plight of loneliness for those that have served us so many years. Yes, um, and, and Dr. Pat, you are really raising a good point. In fact, if I can tell you a quick story. Yeah, please. You know, we, keep, we, keep in, we keep in touch with our residents, particularly new ones that move in, because we want to say, like, what was your process in thinking about taking this journey to make this decision? And, and you know, how are you feeling about the decision that you made? And so I just recently talked to um, one of our new residents, Joyce. She's 82 years old. And she actually had moved into an apartment close to her daughter. She thought she was doing the right thing, right? Be around her daughter, be around the grandkids. And she could pretty much handle cooking and housekeeping and and was doing very well in her apartment. But she was becoming more and more isolated because, right, children and grandchildren have jobs or they're going to school and they, they really aren't visiting as much as you would think you'd be able to visit. And so she was becoming very depressed and lonely. So interesting, this mom actually went to the daughter and said, you know, I think I need to look at something else. This isn't quite working. I'm getting more depressed. I'm getting more isolated, but I don't even know if I can afford assisted living. And so um, having that opportunity then for the daughter to sit down with the mom and say, well, let's go look at some places. Let's see what options are out there for you. They had a chance to take a look at the savings. She had been saving all of her life for retirement plus, you know, her social security and her um, um, husband's, you know, pensions. Um, it was very affordable in assisted living when you compare the expenses that she had on living on her own in her apartment. So anyway, she moves in. She now is the social butterfly of that community. And she goes, I love getting up every morning. I have a reason to get out of bed. 
Um, there's so many activities. I have so many friends that are my own age now, um, and her daughter now can be the daughter, you know, visiting. And so she is just, she goes, if I can give anybody advice, any other senior advice, it would be to make the decision earlier and to start talking to your family earlier in the process. So I hope that it gives everybody encouragement. You know, don't be afraid. I know it's stressful, but, you know, kind of step out now before it's an emergency where you'd have to be making a decision on behalf of your parents, you know, without their input. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, look, I know that one of the hardest things to do is exactly what you're talking about. But let's talk about what is available to people. Um, and, you know, one of the number one fears of even broaching the conversation is the financial part of it. Mm. So let's talk about that, about, you know, how can we reduce the burden of bringing the conversation up? Because that is, I believe, I don't, I don't have the latest uh, data on it, but I do know that the fear of having the conversation has less to do with the event and more to do with how am I going to pay for it. Yes, I, I do think that is one of the um, larger pieces of the decision-making mm-hmm. process. And I, and I think that's why if you're proactive versus being in an emergency exactly. situation, you can, kind of, you can sit down with your parents and say, you know, hey, mom and dad, what are your long-term goals and how can I help you achieve those? And so first let's talk about, you know, what kind of lifestyle and environment you want. And then let's take a look at what are you doing now and what are you paying for now and how can that translate? So when you think about people paying for senior living, they usually have several avenues of of funding. Um, Typically, it's through the sale of a home, their retirement savings, their Social Security. They either may have their own pension or a spouse's pension. And then there's several other things that you can consider um, that you may be eligible for. And that's why if you do this proactively, you have time to research this. So a couple other areas you may want to research, and that is if you were an active war veteran, you and your spouse have the opportunity to receive VA benefits for care that's provided in assisted living. And that's a benefit not everybody knows about, and you do have to apply, and there's a little bit of a waiting time. But um, it's important. that's why it's so important to do this proactively, because you can look at this in advance. The other part is long-term care insurance. So many seniors have either purchased long-term care insurance over the years or they have it through their um, retirement benefits. And so some people think long-term care insurance is only covered in skilled nursing, but many policies, and you have to look at your own policy because there are a variety of different policies out there, but it may cover services and assisted living. So that's critical as well. It is not only critical, and what I'm discovering, and I don't know if this is true for you, but what I'm discovering is that there are now other services, at least in my state, where you can actually sit down with a consultant, let's just say, and they help you here. They help you go through this. And sometimes that might be a first step because it's easier to talk to a stranger than it is to talk to your family. Um, but yeah. well, let me ask you this question, though, too. Before we kind of skip and forget to do this, I know you all have done a lot. How can people find out what is available uh, to them from the work you've done? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's two ways they can do this. One is go to brookdalenews.com. And um, you can also go to our website, brookdale.com. But we've added some resources specific to this particular um, a radio interview mm-hmm. so that folks can see um, there's an ebook that can be downloaded 
that talks about how do I start the conversation, what are the questions I should ask, what are the other things that I should consider, and that should really help the adult children or a significant other, whoever is helping a, a parent or a loved one make a decision, um, is a great resource, and it's a fairly new resource for us, so I would definitely look at that. There are also financial worksheets that families can work through that talk about what are expenses that are being incurred by your parents today, because there are a lot of hidden expenses like um, house insurance and um, uh, the amount that you spend on food and transportation to doctors and um, if you have any kind of services coming into the house, cutting the lawn or doing repairs. And if you compare those costs to costs that you will not have in assisted living or that are part of um, the monthly fee, um, you actually find that assisted living may be more affordable than you ever realized before. Um You've been doing this now, and you have pretty much have seen the evolution of where we've been and where we are now. And let me ask you this question. From where you sit, um, what are you looking at when you look at the horizon? What are you most encouraged by as you look forward? So um, when I started my career 30-some years ago, the industry was just starting. And assisted living, our position was to have an alternative to skilled nursing care. That, that, that's how it started out. When I look at where we are today and where the future is going, I think the type of lifestyle in terms of events, socialization, um, the way we are um, interweaving wellness and health care in our day-to-day -day lives so that it's not just longevity, right? We're living a lot longer, but we're going to live a lot longer in better health. And I think that's where you had mentioned um, at the beginning yeah. of quality of life comes in, Dr. Pat. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And so I think that seniors, um, so us adult children who are helping our parents today yeah. are going to have a better opportunity because we're going to be able to experience all that's out there. I think we may be making decisions to move into independent senior-like um, environments a lot earlier yeah. In, our, in our life than waiting till our 80s. I mean, right now, the average age of somebody entering assisted living is 82. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be more like 70-something. And now we even have active adult senior communities that are 55-plus. And so I think the importance of socialization and being able to continue to achieve goals that you have you know, set for your life, no matter what age you are, is really critical and important. So I'm excited about what we've done. Yeah. Um, I think we've changed the way people age in America over the last three decades. And I look forward to that even being better for the future. Uh, and yeah, and, you know, part of this too, is it's not a one size fits all. And I think we should talk about that. I think what we what we see is a very, very short conversation about what you and I are talking about today. And it's a very, um, let's just say, there's a robust conversation to be had about this. And what I mean is that this is not just like pick something off the shelf, you have to find the right place and so isn't that part of the conversation as well? Yes, and that's why the earlier you start the conversation, the more places you can go and visit. Because you're right, and even Brookdale ourselves, we have 800 communities in 45 states. Um, we're serving 77,000 residents right now. And if you were to ask me, well, how many different types of services do you offer? I'd, I'd probably have to say, I don't know, we have like 500 different styles of buildings and places where people can live and different price points and amenities that are either included or you can buy as you need to, you know, there's, as you said, one size does not fit all. It's 
how many choices can people really make for their own lifestyle? Yeah, and if people go to the website, uh, let's just give them the website again. If people go to the website, they're going to be able to look for where Brookdale communities are, and they'll be able to see a map that will pop up. Just to say, okay, if you don't think that there's something by you, well, wait a minute, go over here and look. Because that's another way for people to really remove the burden or stress of, wow, is there something close by for me? Yes. And um, our advisors are are well-trained. And so, you know, we would love for you to select a Brookdale community. But the ultimate goal of our advisor is really to help, you know, that resident or potential resident find the best spot for them. And so they, they understand the competitors in the area too. So if you're just starting out the process, go visit our communities and talk to an advisor and they'll give you as much information and help, you know, today that you need and can mm-hmm. direct you in other directions if Brookdale is not the one size for you. All right. Can you please give that website out again? And then last yes. question, personal message. What would you like to leave us with today? Okay. Um, the website is brookdalenews.com. And um, from there, you can go into brookdale.com or go directly to brookdale.com to see where our locations of our communities are. And then my personal message to everybody is um, your parents took care of you all those years. And so for us to be able to figure out how to be proactive and help our parents live their next chapter in their life to their best potential is, is something we can give back to them. And so um, use our resources. Reach out to us if we can help you. And, and Dr. Pat, it sounds like you've already been doing a lot of things with your listeners to prepare them. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah, we've been getting a lot of questions over the years. And, you know, we do a lot of coverage on this, especially for a radio show. And as a matter of fact, we're getting ready to launch a weekend venue because we now know that seniors listen on the weekend and they are the fastest growing segment right now. Um, so thank you for all that you do. We want to continue to provide them with positive messaging. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Important information, everyone. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Look, we've got a great segment for you right now. Why is it great? Well, look, many of you have heard me talk about this before. We've got two people joining us here today to really lean into this. First of all, Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg joining me here today and Shirley Weir. Now, why are we here? We're here to talk about, yep, we're going to do it, menopause. And why is that so important? I think many of you have heard me share some of the stories I had, some of the presentations I made in my corporate world and had to bring in two shirts to change into. Why is that? Well, things are changing. Here we are today. And one of the things I know is that they're changing. Women are changing with them. And boy, do we have some people that have some solutions. So we're going to get going. Dr. Cheryl, Shirley, great to have you both here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I don't think I'm alone when I say uh, I had to bring in multiple shirts in the middle of a presentation uh, that I was given in my corporate uh, days. Anybody relate to that? That's a common story we hear. <laughs> well, given that up to 80% of women at menopause experience hot flashes, that's not a surprise to me. But, you know, aren't there other things that we don't talk about around this? And, you know, what we're doing here today is we're talking about modernizing menopause for the next generation. And the reason is that when you, you, you look back at time when you look back at especially like my experience, there are a lot of things that disrupted a lot of, uh, of experiences in my life. I mean, the effects of this are, are devastating. And yet 
women don't talk about it. You know, what is that about? Who wants to take that question? Why don't we feel comfortable talking about it? I think that, you know, we're a generation of women who have been fed, if you will, many myths, misconceptions, even media innuendo around menopause. It has negative energy attached to it where women will push the conversation aside. They maybe think they're not old enough or they don't need to know about it yet. When in reality, what we're, what's new and what we're learning is that the more informed women are, the more educated they are, the more prepared they are, they can have better quality conversations with their friends and family. They can have more informed conversations with their health team, their physicians, and they realize they're not alone. That, you know, every woman is going to reach the stage of life where the first generation to reach 50 and have 50 more years to plan for. So we need to understand we deserve quality of life. And if we are facing challenges, that there are easy, viable solutions and that you're not meant to suffer in silence. Dr. Pat, yeah. you know, women don't even know what menopause is. That's so right. One of the reasons they don't talk about it is they don't understand, well, what is menopause? They get it that it happens around age 51, but it really is about the the loss of ovarian hormones. Mm. And they don't realize, they say, okay, I can't have children anymore, I can't get pregnant anymore, but why is that? Because... Their ovaries are not producing enough hormones to allow them to be fertile. They have little teeny amounts, but not enough. And that loss of estrogen and uh, progesterone really affects them, which is why they have hot flashes and night sweats. They don't know that they could also be at risk for osteoporosis. They don't know, they don't think about estrogen and bone health. And here's the thing they don't ever talk about, and we're trying to get women informed about this, is genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or uh, GSM, which uh, used to be called vulvovaginal atrophy, but guess what? Women don't like to think about their bodies as atrophying. They don't really understand vaginal changes. And the loss of estrogen in that urogenital tract is profoundly uh, distressing because women then have vaginal dryness, the tissue thins, they have pain with sexual activity which they suffer in silence because they don't know that they can go talk to somebody to get it treated, and it's embarrassing to talk about sex or painful sex. So it becomes this conspiracy, conspiracy of silence. Clinicians are still uncomfortable talking about sex. They shouldn't be. And patients are uncomfortable bringing the topic up with their clinicians. And so everybody decides, well, I'll wait for the other person to open the door, and then nobody talks about it. And we do have very safe and effective treatments. We've got local hormone therapy that can't, that is very low dose, that has almost no systemic absorption, that really is important for the chronic and progressive symptoms of uh, vaginal atrophy. And even the hot flashes and night sweats, uh, you know, times have changed from 2002 when the first um, reports of the Women's Health Initiative came out and scared everybody away <laughs> from hormones. In 2017, the North American Menopause Society published their position statement that said, wait a second, let's review this data, and that really first-line treatment for women within the first 10 years of menopause still would be systemic hormone therapy. So times have changed. We need to inform women to come along and talk to their clinicians. Shirley and her, you know, menopause chicks has done an amazing job. Yeah. 
findyourcool.com, that's findyourcool.com, that can inform women to, to move forward and get help. Yeah, and I want to make sure everybody, take a look at both of these websites, uh, menopausechicks.com. Very simple, menopausechicks.com. And the other one is Find Your Cool, and your is you are. Go to both of those sites. A lot of great information. A lot of information that many of us have been very reluctant over time to talk about. But let's talk about the benefits for a minute, because thank you for giving us the update on what's changed. You're absolutely right about that. And the other thing is, um, and, and maybe we can talk about this, is that once upon a time, we had an age category that said you will go through this part of your life at this age. And I think you said 51. But there are some of us that went through this at like age 36. Aren't we really even seeing more and more cases where, you know, the symptoms and these changes are showing up earlier? And I think that becomes more confusing. I mean, in my case, I went through every test on the planet, including people thinking that perhaps I had AIDS. That's how little people knew about this. So can you guys both give us an update, and Shirley, maybe you could, on what is the best way for us to educate each other about this so we don't have to go through, well, how should I say it, additional scary things? Yeah, so that's a really unfortunate story that you just shared, um, but it's not uncommon so the very first conversation that we have with women in the Menopause Chicks private online community is around definitions. So menopause, the average age in North America is 51.2. I refer to it as simply being one day. It's the 12-month anniversary of your last period. But the phase of life leading up to that day is called perimenopause, and that's different for every woman, but it can last 5 to 15 years leading up to menopause. And I'm glad that you also asked about benefits because the benefit of perimenopause is it's an awesome time to get informed and to invest in your health. It's a great time of our lives to pay attention to how we eat, move, sleep, yeah. manage stress, and to go online um, to get as informed and educated as possible as well as to meet other women and have open, frank conversations so that we can feel validated, we can uh, affirm that we're not alone, and that there are viable solutions. Once we start talking about it, it makes it so much easier to say, ah, now I can have a conversation with my doctor. Um, we're a generation of women. We're smart and savvy, but we are now showing up at our doctor's offices informed because, you know, we go online to online communities or to websites like findyourcool.com and we know what questions to ask. And I think that's really the shift that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Positive. Yeah. Sure. I, I'm so glad you brought that up because the other thing, and I know we have short time here. The other thing that I think is important, doctor, is this. I don't want people to go through what I went through and some of my friends went through because we were not well informed. So therefore, had I been more well informed, I would have changed my doctor immediately. And it's hard enough to be standing in front of a doctor who basically doesn't have a lot of time for you and try to say, no, I don't disagree. I would like you to dot, dot, dot. Um, yeah. Where are we on this? I mean, because as women... We're trying to get help, but we don't really want to rock the boat. I mean, it's really an interesting dynamic, but we need to really move on if we're not getting the answers. No, or what? Am I off on that? 
No, no, you're absolutely on target. And actually, the North American Menopause Society, on its website, menopause.org, you can find a, a menopause, a certified menopause practitioner so that you know that somebody is trained to treat menopause. But even uh, your general physician, your family practice, if they're not asking, find somebody else. Either bring it up, and if you give them a chance and they can't manage it, then really find somebody who can, because you're absolutely right. And what you talked about is early menopause, and that for sure, you know, under age 40 is considered early menopause. Under 35 is premature ovarian insufficiency as a, as a mm -hmm. technical terminology. And these women absolutely should be on hormone therapy until at least the average age of menopause, and oftentimes they're going for years and years without hormones. And the, the negative consequences in terms of cardiovascular risk, osteoporosis, yeah. uh, cognitive changes are immense. And women need to know that they can have safe and effective treatments. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm one of the fortunate ones that happened to get the right doctor when I moved out to the Pacific Northwest to get exactly the kind of support you're talking about, because you're absolutely right about that. But there is a window that we could step into and we can't go back in time with this. So thank you for this. One last question. Websites, please, for each of you and your personal message. Uh, my personal message is to invest in how you eat, move, sleep and manage stress. And please visit findyourcool.com, get informed, and have informed conversations with your healthcare team. And I'd visit uh, menopause.org so you can find information on menopause and to find a menopause practitioner. And I would say to everybody, go to menopausechicks.com. I'm Dr. Pat. These incredible women have a busy job today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll be right back, everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome. This is our good news segment. You know what? Antigone Davis, Colin Robinson, joining us here today. Why? This is something we've been talking about for, I'd say, about 10 years. Why is that? Well, 15 years ago, in 2003, somehow I decided to buy airtime on a digital network. My friends thought it was crazy. But here's what we're not crazy about. We are now all trying to navigate the digital age. But how about parents? What's happening out there? Well, here is a partnership that I'm so thrilled about when we think about Facebook and the National PTA coming together to help all of us not just navigate the digital age, but make this digital age something that we can all be proud of. Thank you both for joining me here today and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having us and for having this conversation. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about this. I know that there are many, many issues we can get into, but in a, in a 10, 12 minute interview, I, I really want to focus on where are we with understanding this digital world? And more importantly, navigating is a very good word for parents and grandparents, by the way. Uh, but more importantly, sometimes those waters that we're navigating through, it's like a pretty stormy. Okay, let me ask this question. What was the call to action for both, you know, you, uh, uh, you both coming together, especially for Facebook and global safety and for the PTA? What was the call to action to come together? Colin, maybe you can start with that. And then, and, and, and Tigany, we're going to go to you. Yeah. So we, we know that raising kids in a, in a digital age has become increasingly more complex as time goes on. And, and kids are, are getting online 
uh, younger and younger, and parents are having a tough time understanding um, how to help their kids, and you said navigate mm-hmm. uh, the online life they're, that they're in. So this partnership between Facebook and National PTA was really to give parents um, kind of empower them and educate them in understanding the questions that they need to be having with their kids and the conversations that they need to be having with their kids um, before they get online so that they can have a positive experience. Mm. Uh, Antigone, I want to ask you a different question. What You know, you are at the forefront. I don't even know how to even talk about it, but you're way out there in terms of what's going on in the digital world. What is your greatest concern and what is your most innovative uh, possibility to address that concern? Well, I think probably, you know, I, you're right that I do spend a, quite a bit of time talking to parents and families about safety really all over the world. And I think one of the things that I, I am most concerned about is really making sure that parents don't feel paralyzed in having these conversations. Yeah. I want, we want parents to feel empowered to have access to the right resources that are expert-based, to feel comfortable that the parenting skills that they use offline really apply online. There seems to be a lack of confidence sometimes because they're not necessarily experts in the technology. You don't have to be an expert in all the technology to have these important conversations with your kids. So that's sort of the thing I, I think about quite a bit in terms of how do we make parents feel, give parents that sense of comfort to have those conversations. I think in terms of opportunity, one of the things that, that Facebook recently launched is something called Messenger Kids. We know kids are getting online at a younger and younger age. Messenger Kids is not a social app. It's a messaging app. But what it is is it's parent-controlled. So parents are the ones who uh, set up the account. Parents are the ones who determine who their kids are connecting with. And the idea here is to really give them the kind of controls to ha- when their children first come online. There's a code of conduct that, they, that the child signs when they first participate. The idea here is to help parents uh, have those conversations. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things I love about this is, and I think you both are talking about something that doesn't get talked about enough. You know what I, I kind of relate this to? I relate this to how it feels to go to a doctor and be afraid to actually have a conversation with your doctor or ask the right questions. And I know that for many of us, you, you know, sitting in front of your child or grandchild who is so smart around this, who has so much knowledge. I mean, these children today, they don't even use the word computer anymore. And so this is important in a lot of ways. Here's what I want to ask you. How can we help parents and children come together on a common ground? And what I mean by that is a common ground for the well-being of all. What do you find is uh, the best way or the best type of conversation to have with uh, when you're sitting down with kids? Uh, uh, Colin, what do you think? So, I think the thing to realize as a parent is you might not be the expert. And if you can understand some of the questions to ask your child about the app that they might be using, why it's important to Mm -hmm. them, who they think about following, um, what they plan on doing on those apps, and and allowing the child to be the expert and, and working with it together with them, even on their phones when they download a new app 
go through it with them. Let them show it to you. Let them, and, but knowing that you can ask the questions about, hey, have you looked at the privacy settings and what do those look like? And have the child then go through the privacy settings with you. Are you sharing your location? Is this a private account? Is this a public account? Can you post comments? And then, and then asking those, those kind of touchy-feely questions mm-hmm. of when you see something online that doesn't feel right, what do you do? Who do you talk to? Do you comment back? And, and then taking a step back and allowing the child um, the ability to answer those questions openly and honestly so that mm-hmm. it becomes a dialogue. It's not you as a parent trying to set the tone. It's, it's a back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I want to just also talk about here, and before we get to it, I, I don't want to run out of time. What is the best website for people that are listening to go find more information on how to connect on this? Yeah, so they can go to pta.org slash digital families. In addition, afterward, they can also go to facebook.com backslash safety, where we have a parents portal and ongoing resources for families and young people. Uh, And take it down. Let me ask you this question. How helpful is it for parents to uh, out of the gate, let's say, you know, here we are in the digital world. And I think this is something we don't do, you know, rather than just buy, you know, our child a device and say, here, happy birthday. How important is it for them to actually share in the experience of it at the get go? And what I mean by that is, you, you know, as opposed to coming in a year later and feel like you're prying on your child, but ex- share the experience. So maybe perhaps there's this relationship that develops in the use of the, uh, uh, of the digital uh, um, um, experience. Yeah, you've, you've, you've clearly hit the nail on the head. I think a lot of times having these conversations, even before you ever give your child a phone, is really important. Mm-hmm. Finding out why they want to be on the phone, finding out what is the game or the app that they're most interested in having, what do they like about it, what are they hearing from their friends, and sort of creating that back and forth that begins at a really young age. Because as you, I'm sure, are aware, once you hit you know, 13, which is often when, the, when these apps are available for, for kids, mm-hmm. kids are already separating from their parents at that time, trying to establish their own identity. Yep. What you really want to do is get them much earlier than that. So as they move to that stage, they've already got some skills. Yeah. It, let, let's just talk about one, one last thing here. Um, this term, digital literacy, I love that. Digital literacy, you know, it is an important term that by the very nature of saying it may scare the heck out of parents. Um, What is it that we should know about digital families, community events, and this idea to become digitally literate? I can't even believe that came out of my mouth. That was a tongue twister right there. Well, if you think about uh, digital literacy, in a lot of ways, it's, it's really just a form of consumer literacy. Mm-hmm. So much like I took a consumer ed class when I was in middle school that really taught me all kinds of things, important questions to ask when I was buying something or important questions to ask when I was renting something. This is designed to do the same thing, which is really these events are designed to help parents learn how to ask the right questions of their kids and to get their kids asking the right questions of the technologies that they're using. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would also say actually getting out to some of these events yeah. would be hugely beneficial because there's one coming up at the end of September in Fairfield, Connecticut, yeah. and then another one in Elmont, New York uh, at the beginning of November. 
Yeah. And uh, by the way, this is like uh, happening in what, about 200 cities or so in the United States? 200 cities and towns throughout the country. Yep. Okay. Um, One of the things I want to ask you sort of here in wrapping up is what are, from each of your perspectives, your top three musts? Meaning if you don't get, if you don't take anything else away from this 12 short minute interview. These are the three things you want to leave people with. Uh, Colin, you want to go first and Antigone then? Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So uh, first is to have these conversations early and often. Um, Second would be you don't have to be the expert Mm. in this. Um, And then third, I would say make this something that you can do together. This isn't uh, an us versus them. This is something that should really bring you together as a family. Mm. Thank I you. Feel like you. I feel like he hit all three of my <laughs> the, one thing I, the one thing I, I think I would, would add is, well, there are probably two things that I would add. One is it's really important to be a good role model, much like being a good role model offline. Be a good role model online. So if you want to set time parameters, be willing to set time parameters as a parent for yourself and no, no device times, for example. The other thing I would say is to not um, be afraid, to, to trust in yourself as a parent and have confidence in your parenting skills. A lot of what you already do apply here online. Well, and, you know, also to your background, too, especially, you know, when I think about what you've accomplished in the state attorney general and so forth and some of the, the safety features. Um, can I ask this last question? What can we say for both parent and children to make it okay to report, let me just call them, irregularities? Because I think this is the one area right here that everybody stalls on, right? A parent suspects something, a child is not sure, doesn't want privileges taken away. This, this thing right here where both parents and children notice an irregularity, because I don't have another word, and neither one of them wants to say anything? Well, there are two things. One is that both parent and child should know that certainly when it comes to Facebook, reporting is really important. Mm -hmm. You're actually not only helping to keep yourself safe, you're actually helping to keep the larger community on Facebook safe. So really, we encourage people to, to report. And the next thing is that people should not Um, worry too much about reporting. Reporting is actually very helpful. It is not something that is automatically going to cost you privileges on a particular device or within your family. It's essential for that that conversation. Don't be afraid to speak up. We want to hear from you for sure. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, I know firsthand, and I thank you all at Facebook, because somebody literally copied my identity and acted as Dr. Pat. And the good news is, it was caught by you all very, very quickly because it was an entire setup on the whole thing out there. And I'm telling you, never in my lifetime did I think I would ever rise to any level of anything for somebody to copy my identity. So thank you both so much for this. This is, I think, one of the most important messages of our time for our children's safety and our parents' sanity. So thank you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.